This week's episode of The Digest Show, as always, is brought to you by Black Rectangle Collective. Also contributing this week, Immaculate Tailoring and Grooming, MacGuffins, and oh-so-hotty one-liners. We're going back to the golden age for this one, y'all. And as a special treat, I switched up the music a little bit this week. A young Chase Ricker once lifted a line from this week's film. We'll put it in a rock and roll song. Went back in the archives and uh, wanted to share it with y'all. So thanks for indulging me. Now I hope it can indulge you because honestly, this week's episode is fucking good. Great conversation. Great film. Hope you're entertained. Let's fucking go. You like that music? Yeah, give me that old school. We switch it up for y'all. We'll explain later. Joshua, this week, our films always inspire us to do some creative opening. This week, I want to let you know, if ever I'm traveling again, if it's ever safe again, and you have my hotel information, you need to see, just ask for George Kaplan's room. I'm just going to go under George Kaplan for the rest of my life. Oh, I like that low-key travel move, incognito. That's awesome, dude. Okay, George Kaplan. That's that's where Chase is staying. Welcome to the show. It's time to travel back in time to a more golden age where the masters roamed the earth. And one master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock, joins us this week as we discuss 1959's epic thriller, North by Northwest. Yes, we're let's, going back, dude. We're going back. Go. After toiling in the 2010s for the majority of the season, testing the waters and potentially changing the name of the podcast to That 70s Show, we had a conversation. We said we need some grit and we need some classic vibe on this show. Josh, how did we come to this 1959 classic? What happened? I mean, I think think it's just that time of year, right? It's just that, I mean, you get to a certain time of year, it gets cold out. You know, the, the leaves are gone. You know, maybe somewhere in this beautiful country you're getting snow or a beautiful world you're getting snow. I don't know. I wish. Uh, but anyway, you classic movies, man. Wintertime uh, through the holiday season into the, the cold, bitter parts of the winter. That's that's the classic movies. That's the the black and white, if you will, even though we didn't quite go there. It's the Hitchcock. It's the bogey. It's the everything. Give it to me. Wrap me in familiarity, please. Yes. For the love of God. Yes. All right. I got back in the box this week, my man. So please join us. If you've never seen this classic film, which you're missing out if you haven't, or if it's been a while like it might have been for us, please turn the DVD over and join us on the back of the box for an overview of the film before we do our deep dive. Cary Grant is the screen's supreme man on the run in his fourth and final teaming with Master of Suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. He plays a Manhattan ad man plunged into the realm of spy and counter-spy, and variously abducted, framed for murder, chased, and in one signature set piece, corrupt-dusted. Naughty, naughty, Alfred. He also hangs for his dear life from the facial features of Mount Rushmore's president. Savor, please! One of Hollywood's most enjoyable thrillers ever. Full stop. Right, full stop. And Apparently, uh, the powers to be in the government weren't so keen on uh, dangling out of nostrils of presidents, you know, after having thrown people off of mountains. There we'll get to that an, later. There is an air of deep state. Uh, Alfred's not afraid of meddling. <laughs> a little the, bit. In primal forces, to harken back to one of our other favorite films on the show. Tell me about it. And he, and he says, he says uh, 
I thought the I thought the movie was uh, pro democracy. I don't I don't see what the problem is. Uh, fearless. I would yeah. describe this week's director, which we're going to get to. Several laws were break broken in the making of this film, and uh, as a Lord Commander of all special features, I can't wait to hear what nuggets you have to bring for us this week. Uh, we touched on a little bit of why we chose this movie. I just want to ask you. Last night when we were prepping, you almost had the slight aversion before we dove into it. You know, this is like one of the reasons I fell in love with films was this movie, and especially the last 30 minutes of this film. And as a child watching it, I'll just go ahead and share my first memory of watching it. Um, turn to classic movies, sick day off from school. I was probably like eight, nine, ten in that range. And my dad, my father, uh, he likes the old classics in every regard. He's an old school kind of guy. And watching this movie on a sick day, Turner Classic Movies, uh, that's my favorite memory of it. And it again, it's a warm fucking blanket. And that last 30 minutes just it sparked my interest and it inspired me to love film. It was my first memory. Yeah, no, and I I um I think so my to answer the part about my slight aversion, I is I think it was one of those moments where it was like, man, I, like, is it because it's old? No, no, it's well, it was kind of, but it's like, man, am I ready for this? Like, am I am I gonna be able to do? Am I gonna be good at this? Right? And then, and because see, like, what happened is I I I always watch these things from a Blu-ray, like exclusively, like, and so I like throw the disc in. And it pops up, and I hit pause immediately so I can go get myself settled. And I look up at the screen, and I see two hours and 16 minutes, and I'm like, shit, okay. This is a beast. It's already a beast. It's just in nature. Like, am I ready for this? And then as soon as I sat down and I hit play, and that OG MGM line came on, I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm in. Oh, God. Yeah, it's great. And the, the, the credits, you know, Hitchcock, I think the composer is always like the second person credited, like in every one of his films. And can you talk a little bit maybe about the artist that he works with to do those those opening credits? This one's different. It's got this green color palette. It it's immediately grabs your attention. Yeah, I mean, uh, Saul Bass. I mean, he worked he worked with him a few times, and really most notably on Vertigo. Um, I mean, because if an you opening think, cre- an opening credit that is is well remembered by most film fans. Yeah, and and he worked on the you, you know different scenes and yeah, I mean, so um, yeah, he worked with him frequently and also had you know some of the best designers and minds of uh, Madison Avenue work on the imagery in his films. Ironic, I mean, don't the, you think? Uh, right, the posters, the the everything. So, uh, you know, hit. And that, to me, did not surprise me because the way Hitchcock uses psychology in his movies to make them so fucking good is very much the kind of thing that Madison Avenue kind of figured out and did to us, you know, for the past hundred-ish years coming up on. We're gonna dive. Decades. Yeah, we're gonna dive into that parallel deeper a little further on in the show. But please, Joshua, share with us your first memory of the film. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know. Uh, when we were talking about this originally, I couldn't I couldn't place where I'd seen it. And then as I started doing a little research, it dawned on me. It was like, obviously, the person who introduced me to these films was a girl I had dated in high school. Her father was a professor. And he, I mean, he introduced me to these movies. And we started with stuff like, um, you know, bringing up baby 
you know, with uh, Catherine Hepburn. And then just, I think he loaned me movies and I would take them home and watch them. And Hitchcock was definitely one of those things. So uh, shout out to that guy. Uh, may he rest in peace. But, but no, I mean, this is one of those kind of movies. It's somebody, you need someone who was born a lot, uh, like way before you, to like show you these kind of movies and like get you into them. You need that. Yeah. I, um, Ingrid Bergman and Catherine Hepburn, two of my dad's all-time favorites. There you go. There you go. So like those old, that golden age of Hollywood, those, especially those women were very revered in my house. Those powerful, like snarky, smart ladies. Well, they were, dude, in a way, like looking back and again, doing some research, like you, it's really interesting in the 40s and early 50s, you saw a lot of the females tended to be the top bill and they, they, they their name was slightly bigger and on top of the, the male lead. And it was like, who's going to be in the Hepburn movie? Who's going to be in the Grace Kelly movie? Not, not like you know, who's going to be in the Eva Marie Saint movie, not who's going to be in the Cary Grant movie. Who's going to be, who's going to be the lady in that. It's like, no, we cared about the women. I, I, I think Cary Grant might be the exception. Uh, Well, he was under, he was, he was under some names. I'll put it that way. But yes, he he was a top bill for a long time. I think this is a perfect segue into our first segment and we're going to unpack old Hollywood on today's episode. It's a huge part of the lore, lure and iconic status of this film. Um, it's Cary Grant and Hitchcock's last uh, collaboration. Um, it's iconic for many reasons. Set pieces we're going to get to, um, the the mystery we're going to get to, the MacGuffins we're going to get to. But the way, but the way that Hitchcock uses the the star, and there's really three big powerhouses in this performance, uh, or in this film rather. We could start with one James Mason, probably. You know, you can talk about James Mason. He's probably one of the most like pedigreed IMDb. Uh, pages, you know, along with Martin so Landau, who I, who I want to touch on as well. Oh, but absolutely. He's a giant. It's a giant. So many titles. Yeah. So many titles. I, I can't underscore the word giant enough. Like, he is yeah, Hollywood. I mean, Captain Nemo. Come on. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Come on. Brutus and Julius Caesar. Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah. And, you know, when you think about old Hollywood and a, an actor like that, of that pedigree, you think about strength and the ability to portray mystery in a way that carries the, uh, you know, antagonist side of the film is, it's great. It's just, he's so mysterious, like I said, and he's a special agent. He's a spy. His name isn't revealed till later. He's got three fucking names attributed to him throughout the film. He's the adversary of Thornhill or protagonist. And as far as his performance, the one-two punching with Cary Grant in this film, they're just... They're just two heavyweights just slinging it back and forth. They it's, are. And it's so much. He almost has this like bondish quality. He does. And we're going to get to that later. Oh, um, we are. But yes. um, one thing that he one thing that he has is just this. He just make he's I it's so villainous, like without even trying, he just achieves this sense of like, I, I don't know. And and. It's, he's like he's detached from things, and that makes him even more violent somehow. I don't know. It's yeah, he's a d- great, great job in this. And 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 with Martin Landau as, as his, the secretary, his, two, his secretary, his number two, like mm-hmm. that archetype, that kind of like persona that's captured. It, it, this ominous, you know, backroom 
he literally pulls the curtain and draws the light down in in one of the early scenes and it's just it's 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 it feels like you're watching the uh the birth of an archetype with with this kind of character and and with his with his like assistant wringing his hands in the corner looking on you know menacingly plotting his master's next move it's just so great yeah it is and martin landau is is tremendous in this tremendous in this I, I think I might be enamored with this era of Hollywood and uh, pop culture in general because everyone's just so goddamn good looking. And mm. even the even the number two to the bad guy, Martin Landau, is just like a handsome man. And fucking well-dressed, <laughs> Dude, the suits! The Everybody. Suits. Everyone oh. dressed like so... I think it's like the peak of fucking fashion, probably. I mean, wow. I mean, every ad man needs a gray suit. There you go. Every evil, and every evil villain needs a a green vest under the gray suit. Yeah. <laughs> Guess that? So good. Oh, yeah. So good. Oh, yeah. Um, if this podcast fails, if I lose my job, my friends and families desert me, I know exactly what I will do. Any guesses? Mm, I actually don't know. I will start the Eva Marie Saint fan club and be the <laughs> sole and biggest fucking member. She's the agent of charm in this film. She's one of the only performers, I think, of the time, save for Catherine Hepburn, or obviously with mountains of proof or Ingrid Bergman, to stand with Cary Grant's his own charm and his own comic timing. It's sexy. It's uh, fleeting. It's flirtatious. It's also sincere. And their uh, their performance together is my favorite part of the film, which we're going to count down later. Um, I, I fall in love with her every time I watch it, and she delivers... There's a myriad of and unending quotes of this film, but she, her deliveries are just the fucking best. She's incredible in this movie. Yeah, I mean, she she absolutely is. She's yeah, I mean, she's that heroine of old Hollywood to a T. I mean, right right before that, right before that vibe kind of went away. This is you could say you could say this might be one of the last of those great performances by one of those iconic actresses of yesteryear right um she and you said the word sexy i mean that the train car conversation which we'll touch on i'm thinking about right now yeah i mean that that stuff gets like it 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 just is such a sexy conversation there's not another word for it like it just you, you can't anybody listens to that and you're just like wow they are like dancing with language and they literally, you know, they play with sexuality so much. Those oh, two yeah. characters do. Oh yeah. With the word proposition is thrown around, and and mm-hmm. she's a powerful woman, and she's she she even you know the the agents of power behind her, she plays them to play him, and yes. everyone's playing someone. But I think the way that her character, Miss Kendall, um, Eve Kendall, the way that she plays everyone with her her femininity and her sexuality is such an alluring part of the film. Absolutely. And it's done well. And like in not a uh it's in a, in like a respectable like way. It but it's definitely a facet of the of the movie. Oh yeah, it's, uh, I mean 100% 100% classy, but that's oh, that's class. a, that's everything in this movie. You know, that's everything in this movie. Like everything is done with class. Like we're going to kill we're going to kill suits, you. Man. Yeah, we're going to kill you, but we're going to look good doing it. And we're also going to be a little polite about it, you know? Like, so let's just talk about it. So what is what does uh, Van Damme say then when they finally kill um, Martin Landau's character? He says, 
That was a very good sporting using good bullets. Yes. That's like one of the last lines yes. of the movie. Yes. So good. Yep. Yep. So good. Uh, one of the last perform the last performance we want to get to and talk about is the man, the myth, the legend, quite possibly in the top five of the greatest movie stars in the history of planet Earth. Top Fucking three. Megastar. Cary Grant. Yeah. Megastar. I if mean, if I could be anybody, I might choose to be Cary Grant. Perfectly tanned, immaculately groomed, funny. Charming, wasted, uh, just disarming, honest, handsome as all get out. Did epic, epic voice. Epic voice. Did I mention perfectly tanned at all times? You did. Would you like to repeat anything else? <laughs> he's just the shit. Like he's just the consummate movie star. He's a good-looking dude. Yeah, he's that, and he he is that era. He is that like man of the world, nineteen fifties metropolitan man in control of everything you know like that that art archetype i mean it's um the guy was in 54 movies from 1935 until he retired in 1966 54 movies and that's basically from the time he became a top build actor leading roles right 54 fucking movies that's insane that's so many movies. I think the obvious comp to the 21st century is – I don't think I'm going out on a limb here is, is, no. George, is George Clooney. Absolutely. You Not didn't just even need to say the name. It's like obvious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I don't think it's possible to overstate how famous and how powerful uh, Cary Grant was in his time. I, it, he was you know, 40 well, – he became a naturalized U.S. citizen citizen 42. He's born in England. But from 45 to 70, the dude, he has ebbs and flows in his career, but he was fucking Hollywood. He was the most famous movie star in the world. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, you, I mean, again, because he made, he made like those early, like those late 30s, early 40s, like classic, like, you know, like I said, bringing up baby and holiday with Catherine Hepburn. Then like you fast forward a little bit and you're in 1955 and he's making To Catch a Thief. And then you fast forward again. He's making North by Northwest, and then I know, watched to catch a, I watched to catch a thief this week, dude. Of course, some, I needed some Grace Kelly and Cary Grant. Yeah, so good. It's good stuff, man. It is good, good stuff. stuff. I think the word on the street was that Grace Kelly would have played Eve Kendall if she hadn't have been, you know, was it uh, Princess of Monaco at that point or whatever. And I believe Jimmy Stewart was clamoring to play the role of Thornhill. He was, but oh, Hitch changed his mind on that. Well, let's talk about that. And the power of stars. I think Hitchcock is famous for, we just talked about how in their own right famous these celebrities and performers are. Hitchcock uses that celebrity to toy with our expectations when we go into a picture. Um, you know, these acting seems to have had a shift around this time with the advent of people like Marlon Brando and the actor's studio and new school and all of those things. There's artists, if you will. And acting, and then there's entertainers, and it seems like Hitchcock, and especially in this instance, em employs and employs entertainers to do their work, and to be their expectation is a part of your viewing of the film, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think that I think that North by North, have, like rewatching it and thinking about it in a new context, it really comes to me that this is a place you can actually put a finger. And point like at, at almost a transition, and and I think 
North by Northwest could be one of the last, like, epic old Hollywood movies. I mean, I really, I really think that you, I mean, there's, there's a few, I'm sure. Uh, but when you get into the sixties, things start going from the, the, you, you go from this entertainment based acting, like you were saying, and it transitions into this like truthy realism method acting. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, we're talking about uh, Eva Marie Saint. She's in On the Waterfront water with Brando. And it's like Brando being one of those people who leads into that transition. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, it's almost like celebrity eats itself. <laughs> and these people start taking themselves too seriously, to our delight, for great performances, you know, nonetheless. But there is this difference between, you know, machismo and b- big, powerful women characters and actresses and, like, taking your performance so seriously that you're hunting for Oscars and you're looking for recognition and accolades when Cary Grant, Cary Grant looks like he just fell backwards into this world. He probably wore that suit yesterday. He famously didn't take acting seriously. He was there to entertain in this big thriller, Hollywood motion picture. He's not only romancing you. He's not only thrilling you, but he's making you laugh. He's entertaining you. He's a vaudevillian as much as he is, you know, a, a leading man. Yes, and and I think okay, so absolutely, and I think that it, when you you say vaudevillian, and that's something else I was thinking, like almost that these actors of those of that age were almost more akin to like like almost like a Greek performance of of theater. It, it's it's less of this. I must portray the precise character. But it's more of I need to be part of the whole thing that is telling the story and moving the story, I guess. And it's it's just a different kind of 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 vibe that that you get from it. You know what I mean? I think that that's Hitchcock as well. You know, we're we first of all, I just want to say we brand ourselves as a middle brow podcast. You could do ten seasons of uh, one podcast about like a half of a Hitchcock movie. We're not pretending to be experts just a formal disclaimer once again but that being said hitchcock movies are self-relevant and they are i think of hitchcock in the same uh sentences like george uh not george orwell um orson wells thank you so these these movies are self-realized and they're they're not there they're there to entertain like we keep saying and yeah there's there's something different between how films are made now and how they were made back then that I don't think I don't think that we will ever see films like this ever again. Well, no, I mean, because and it's like, you know, to make another connection to the cast of this film, which is one of the reasons why I like a point. You said maybe this is a place to look when you talk about this is, you know, James Mason. He goes on after this shortly after to play the professor in Lolita. So That's you have one of his biggest role. Yeah. And you have actors like Marlon Brando taking acting in different places and then you have filmmakers like Kubrick taking genre in new places and pushing boundaries and then you get the the you know what they call the golden age of cinema in the 60s and it just this star power loses its thing you almost want to see the everyman the nobody the the young actor that no one's heard of almost you want to see in these true roles you know it it's almost like if they made movies like this again it would be uh it would debut on Christmas Day, 
And I probably wouldn't go see it. I probably wouldn't give a fuck about this movie. These kinds of films, like they would be the Knives Outs and they would be the Agatha Christie adaptations with 20 famous people in them. They would be, you know, popcorn movies. But what Hitchcock does is psychology and he invites you into this world and you're interactive with the way the camera's working and all of his famous signatures. Um, and even like the aesthetic and the way that they make the movie is so different of its time and even today. And I, I just think with money and Hollywood and and box office, which I don't even know if movie theaters are going to be a thing anymore. <laughs> but right? I don't think that these these movies get made. It's never going to happen again. It it very well may not. It very well may not. I mean, it's it's there's a good chance. But you're right. I mean, the one thing that I would just say to to add to that is Hitchcock was doing this, you know. 70 years ago and and you know a little shorter a little more and these movies it's like they're tired that's why that's why we that might be why we don't actually go see them i mean could you imagine i mean think about a movie like um i mean i don't know i can't think of anything off the top of my head but something that's uh, just that got like or the departed shit there's a good one mystery movie with a with a good director and a good cast uh, you know, you might would go see that on on Christmas Day at a theater because it's something fresh, right? It's not just the same old story regurgitated back out at you, like some of this new stuff that comes out now is. Do you know who I think does the closest thing? <laughs> Who's that? Jordan Peele. I think he's closest to like what Hitchcock does. I know he's only has a couple credits to his name, and there's some irony with like the Twilight Zone reboot that he's a part of, but. Those kind of movies that are there to make your brain tick and make you feel uneasy and thrill you, but not their aim isn't to make a billion dollars. I don't know. Just a off-the-cuff kind of comparison. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, so one thing that I wanted to, to, to kind of get out at this was this one point is this – you said the words movie magic. And I wanted to say that that's like one of the main things for me when you think about – old Hollywood and then the transition into new. I mean, you get just the, what we think of as movie magic in our minds is this kind of movie magic, not the new kind where it's like little green dots with motion suits on. And they're like, you know, do I need to, you know, what do I need to hold the thing? And they're like, no, we'll CGI it in later. Don't worry about it. Um, it's the painted backdrops. The, you know, well, the, that's, that's, it's a good transition into like the, the the filmmaking employed in this film is is like the precursor to all of that the superimpositions the set pieces and the way it like creates this world and it's interactive almost and it's what makes it memorable you know so let's talk about that a little bit yeah i, I mean if i could start just by saying this is the thing that most people in our generate or our generation and younger can't get into these movies for they can't divorce themselves from needing everything to be so perfect instead of just convincible or convincing, I, excuse I, me. You know, I, I actually know someone in my life who can't watch movies from like the nineties because it looks too old. What the fuck is happening? Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's the thing. Like what the fuck? <laughs> uh, it, well, it is. And you know, and so it's like, you just want people like I geek out over these things. Like the fact that these people are able to take paint 
and some raw materials and on a soundstage make it look like two people fucking scaled Mount Rushmore. It's amazing. So, it, it, it's, con- it's convincing, and you just need to give in to it. And, and I love giving in to that. So I love that kind of movie magic. I mean, the, this whole thing is just like one big collage with, you know, shot on sound stages, some in real life, and posed, some painted backgrounds. And then you get these quiet, this quietness and these bursts of the score. I mean, it's, it's just great stuff. So one big thing that sets Alfred Hitchcock apart, I think, is like the psychology that he implores in his films. And I kind of want to dive into that a little bit and just kind of chew on Hitchcock. Sure. Sounds good. So he messes with the audience, right? He plays on our fears, our innate hum- human, you know, uh, conflicts that we deal with. Better than almost anybody. Yeah. So yeah. what do you think? What do you think he's leaning into in this film? Um, I mean, he's leaning into a lot. Are you kidding me? I mean, some of the things that we think of as just full-blown cliche in movies that we watch today were not cliches in Hitchcock's t- time, and he was doing them. I mean, mistaken identity framed with his prints on the knife. I mean, a chase through a cha- train station. How many times have you seen that in just TV and films? I mean, it's over and over again. Uh, secret agent falling in love with her target. I mean, it's astonishing to me. I brought up Orson Welles earlier. When you watch these old films, I think about Citizen Kane and like the mirror sequence and things like that. It's astonishing how much canon is involved in these films. It's astonishing how much is copied and how much this is just biblical fucking text for movie making for a hundred fucking years. Yes. And it's going to be copied and it's going to be referenced and it's going to be done over and over again. And when you watch these old movies, you just see that and it's crazy. You're like, people haven't like done anything different. It's like, nope, because this shit fucking works. Absolutely. I mean, you you could all. I mean, my notes actually say Hitchcock, comma the man, comma the pioneer, and it's like you could say that like there are a handful of filmmakers out there, you know, that really influenced everything we're almost seeing today in a way, you know. And Hitchcock is one of those people. And to do to go through and name them all would be an entire podcast. But Hitchcock is definitely like one of those people that that pioneered so many of the things that you see that run through new films. I mean, and I think one of my favorite things that he pioneered is the POV shot. Like he really made that like a thing. And some of the more famous ones that I think of are like uh, uh, Fonda in the jail cell, Henry Fonda in the jail cell in the wrong man. Um, He like sitting in his jail cell and he's like, you see his face, and then you flash to the corner, and then you see his face, and you flash to the sink, and you see his face, and you flash outside. So you, Hitchcock has this way of put you in a character's position, and then you know, famously in this one, it's the cornfield, you know, when he's looking around. But then another big one is the mother's killing perspective in Psycho. I mean, he uses this thing that makes you—it's a trick that artists use, you know—that put you in someone's perspective and in their shoes and you can kind of feel this sense of you know danger if you will or whatever it is he's trying to articulate at that time i think it's really interesting that he he invites you into this world and with the physical camera work he's like we said he's playing on these human and innate fears and he plays with this sort of mystery but i think the thing that kind of sets him apart is that the way that he addresses mystery there's like not a lot of darkness 
and like it's implied darkness there's evilness behind the curtain but honestly that sometimes that's one thing that bothers me or that i want more from a hitchcock movie is that it is that there is that sense of light entertainment hollywood blockbuster thing there's not as much uh sinister stuff right in front of your face it's more like i said behind the curtain sort of thing well and yeah and i I think that's that's where you get that's the, the kind of the strand that leads you to the master of suspense, right? Right. Like, okay. That's so why I, I keep coming back because I I, I, I got to share this one little thing. There, he was talking about suspense, and he's like, okay, if a bomb's going to go off in a movie, there's two ways that you can show this, right? You can just show the two people sitting at the table, and they're having small talk. They're talking baseball, unassuming, and then boom. The, the bomb goes off and he's, you know, that will surprise the audience, but that only lasts for a few seconds. He's, but the other way to do it is to, at the very beginning, show the audience the bomb under the table with the timer set at four minutes and then pan up and show talking about baseball. And then it lasts for the entire time and the audience is sitting there no, no, don't talk about baseball. Let's, 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 let's get, you're getting like a real rise out of the audience. But he says, and here's the most important thing. If you tell them that there's a bomb under the table, if you show them the bomb first, that bomb better not go off. Somebody better stop the bomb because you made them die for four minutes waiting on the moment this bomb goes off. And if it goes off, they'll be mad as hell. And I loved that because that is his movies. It really is his movie. What is the clip you sent me from the special features a couple of days ago? Is like some might say, I was probably born with a sense of drama. Yes, yes, and it's just he's so he is so dramatic the way he, like you know he hosts. There's a great promo for North by Northwest. It's called a guided tour with Hitchcock, and it's like a sign tra- me up. It's a trailer that MGM put out, and it's literally like him in this like it looks like a like a fucking fifties infomercial. And he's sitting there with this map of the route in the movie planned out. And he's like talking about your summer vacation and all these different things you could do. And you could come with me. This new motion picture I made. <laughs> it's, I love it. It's just, you know, I don't know. Hitch is such a cool guy and I've always admired him. And he's like, he's a showman when it comes to his movies. But when, when it's real life, he was always very quiet and kind of reserved and liked to observe and didn't really like to take the air out of the room, you know? Well, he's one of those filmmakers that is very a part of his presence is very obvious in his films, uh, quite literally, which I think we're going to get to at the very end here. Right. But but he, you just feel Hitchcock in it. And, you know, he's, his his story is interesting, how he started. He made silent films and started as a cue card uh, designer, I'm pretty sure, and just yep. like watched how to make movies. And I think that's something that we're lacking in in Hollywood and in, in movies today as I was sitting there watching like the, the um, Mount Rushmore scene. And I'm like, do I want like fucking Jake Gyllenhaal or like fucking Jared Leto or like somebody hanging, like helping this lady, like not fall off the cliff. And like, I just couldn't even imagine it because I don't know if there's any filmmakers who are that, you know, perverse and are that in tune with entertaining us and making us want to go to the movies and have an experience and not just see a famous person. We like, you know, or buy into a franchise. Well, I mean, I'll just say we're we're still talking about Hitchcock, and you know, I'll I'll only touch on it briefly, but I'll say 
I mean, really, someone who comes to mind for me, two people who come to mind for me are, are Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan. They are both very much trying to, like, I went and watched the movie You Despise the Hateful Eight in theaters when it came out, and you got a program, and there was an overture yeah. playing, and I an went, interlude, and, and, you know, someone gave a talk about the movie before, and it just felt like you, they were trying to making an event where you would want to come to the movies again, you know? And, and I kept thinking about that too, because it really is just that pure sense of entertainment. And I think that that's a lot, that is a lot of Tarantino's movies too. It's just, it's just entertainment. You shouldn't be trying to glean, you, you shouldn't be trying to glean anything big from a Tarantino movie. You should just go and get on the ride and get off of it. You know? And I feel like Hitchcock's a lot like that. Although he does, almost have like a, a fables way of like sneaking a message in there about your own like weird perversions and fetishes or whatever he had. Well, I think that's why he makes us puts us on the edge of our seat and makes us enjoy watching his films is it's like, he's, he's poking that thing inside of all of us. There's yeah. a humanity and like he, he understands the things that are universal and that's what he toys with. Yeah, I mean, and, and he knows, he also knows the psychology of an audience. Like, he understands them very, very well. I mean, like, for example, in this movie, we, we, the first 25 minutes of this movie feels like quicksand. You're yeah. like, damn. I mean, not even this, mo- his dude's mom believes him. And you're like, just like, oh my God. And then you go 38 minutes into the movie before you, as the audience member, or apparently Cary Grant as the actor, even have a fucking clue what's going on. We'll touch on that. You know, Cary Grant on Hitchcock, first of all, famous for the torturing Tippi Hedren and like, like being obsessive and very unhealthy and toxic with female uh, performers in his films. But in in your research, talk about Cary Grant's like experience on set. How this poor man had absolutely no fucking clue what was going on. He didn't. I mean, he 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 said, I don't know if they only gave him chunks of the script or what, but he just didn't. I think he was probably getting shooting scripts more than anything. And he, you know, a third of the way into the project, he came to Hitchcock and he's like, I, he's like, I don't even know if I buy this. Like, I, I don't, I don't know why I'm running from them. I don't know why they're looking for me. I don't know what I'm looking for. Like I am just, and Hitchcock simply just replies back to him. Well, sounds like it's working. Yeah. He's like, listen, uh, go get back in the tanning bed, press yeah. your suit. Like, get back on screen. This is what I, I don't need you to understand what's going on. I need you to be confused, and I need yeah. you to look fucking good. And I so, need you to walk into the Plaza Hotel and look like a fucking G for a minute. Okay, can you do this for me? I mean, he lived, he actually lived there at the Plaza Hotel at the Cary time. Cary Grant? Yeah. It, it, it was so funny. Like, uh, they were shooting that shot the first time he walks in to go uh, meet the, the uh, people originally in the beginning of the movie. And someone was telling Hitchcock, like, you're not going to give him any directions. It's like, he's, he, he lives here. Like, I just need him to. Oh, I love it. I want to fucking live at a hotel. Shit. Right. That's like I... a level. Is that a yeah. level to it? That's a level. Yeah. That's I so love it, uh, just a quick sidebar. Cary Grant's like famous uh, accent, like popping up. It's great. in that hotel scene when he asked for a, a valet, a valet, he goes, no valet. Mm. Well, but, but then the American guy comes to I actually in my notes, I wrote. Like, this pronunciation of valet is, like, fucking killing me right now. Because the dude comes to the door, and he's like, valet service? It's like, what is it? Why, why can't valet? We? I think it's because it's, like, right after World War II, and we're, like, we're not going to we're not gonna use the French pronunciation of anything over here in America. We're going to say valet. 
We're going to call them Freedom Fries, and we're going to say Valet. Valet instead of Valet. So we... <laughs> the baggage. Not we've, chewed, <laughs> we've chewed on Hitchcock a bit, and that's what this whole episode is about. It'll be even interwoven for you throughout the rest of the episode. But let's move on to a little more focused segment, and let's talk about some motherfucking set pieces. Again, it's what makes this movie iconic. It really is. And there's a handful of very specific ones that we're going to dive into. Let's start, my friend, on the inside with some iconic interiors. The embassy s- sequence. Yeah, yeah, so good. I mean, Shakespearean. I mean, sure, yes, absolutely. I mean, I've some fun, you know, some fun about that. So, like, we're all we're talking interiors, and we're talking about the General Assembly Lounge is where we're really talking about. But to get into the lounge, you got to go in the building. Oh, tell that story. On my second rewatch, after you told me, I was like stopping and looking for for the live action shot. So explain it. So okay, so they. Hitchcock couldn't get a, a shooting permit at the United Nations. They wouldn't let him shoot Didn't the care. location. Didn't give a not, not inside nor outside. So this dude rigs a van for like some like handyman or cleaning company or something like that. Rigs a van with a camera in it and parks it across the street and shoots Cary Grant walking up the stairs to go into the United Nations. And that's a real shot. And I love it because at the top of the stairs, there are two things. First, there are a couple of security guards standing there watching him walk up. And then there's this old guy carrying a briefcase, watching him come up the stairs. And he's at the top of the stairs, and Cary Grant's at the bottom of the stairs. You can see the guy look at him and then go, takes a couple stairs down, and then he just stops dead in his tracks. And he does a big double take and looks back, and he's like, that's fucking Cary Grant. And you could just tell from his body language that the dude spotted Cary Grant and was like, Wait, what? And he, but luckily he just kept walking because it could have been bad. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's also why you get that badass forced perspective. Like paint, the paint, set it's a shot. painting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and I mean, I'm pretty sure the way, I, I, actually, I'm not even going there. It's painted and it's forced perspective. And kudos to that fucking guy. I mean, that's insane. My favorite part of that sequence is like in the big room where the lady's making the uh, pages. And it's right after uh, gets like the fucking tomahawk knife thrown out of his back, and like the um, the the young ladies like reach over the uh, the counter like and see yeah. everybody's like reaching towards uh, Thornhill's character. It's, it reminds me of like Shakespeare or something. It's like accidental renaissance, frozen in time with the with the gun in his hand or the knife yeah. in his hand and like. It's so good. And it's like, oh, it's jarring almost because it's not, the aesthetic of it is not in line with the rest of the film. And it, oh, it's a great, great sequence. Yeah, it is. I mean, it absolutely is. I mean, um, I, I think that Hitchcock's the only person who could get away with somebody getting knifed in the back like that. And, and it's so ridiculous it's, it would never happen. But but somehow it's like I'm not even mad about it. Like for real. In in most movies I would just be so super irked. There's only one thing in this whole movie that that bothers me that really bothers me at all. And it's it's just but I love that like no matter how outlandish what I'm seeing is, he does a good enough job of connecting the dots that I'm like, okay. I'm okay. But if I can I go, can I like 
piggyback from there onto another like small interior shot. You're the technician here. Take it so, away. So like to just just to describe the way he does these set pieces anyway. I mean like the way he thinks. Like there's this scene um, where they're where Eve is in a phone booth and so is Leonard. And the the shot tracks across the phone booths and you can see she's in there talking and he's in there talking. You kind of get the gist that he's giving her directions, right? Well, when they were shooting that, Hitchcock Hitchcock shut the set down for an entire day because he had problems. He was like, I can't figure out how they would have each gotten the phone numbers for the pay phones and like how they would have called each other. So he just shut shooting down. He left, came back the next day. I guess he had figured out whatever was bothering him and just shot the went on. He just went home, ran it through his head a million times, figured out how it all worked, came back and made. And it's like, that's what I'm getting at is like, I'm not mad when I see these outlandish things because you know he's thought about the details so much that you can't, he won't really leave you much of a plot hole where you can see, see, that couldn't have happened. You know, oh, that couldn't have happened. It's like, you don't get that. It's interesting that, like, so the kind of a summarization of, of, of a written opinion that I've seen, various written opinions I've seen of Hitchcock is like, every frame that you see is an idea. And that idea is influenced by your experience. And it's all self-referential, like we've said. But it's funny how he's so detail-oriented. Yet, there's so many holes in this movie that are just absurd that we'll get to later. But that paradox of, I, I, I hate that we keep saying it, but it's fucking pure entertainment. It is. Like you, I, like, I like the way you put it. You were, like, uh, giving in. Yeah, just, it's just like into going it. into the world and yeah. stop asking questions and like get yeah. your fucking world rocked for two hours. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Just have some fun. Have some fun. Yeah, and um, go ahead. No, yeah, and that and this embassy set piece, this sequence is is a great example of that. Was all I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. There's something about old movies and like I would say the 30s up through the mid 60s. Josh, what happened to the train? Oh. We, lo- we lost it. But it's like I, I wish we didn't lose it. It's a staple of every classic film. It just is. And those interior shots of the train is just another chapter of that story. Well, I, I thought about the train. You know, think about what the train did. You know, like here we go. I'm serious. No, but I mean, little you you guys get this. Think about what the train did. You it opened up travel so it was, much it was commuting it was travel like your trip was the train your trip was, was like first of all real quick we get out of the way we get to name the trains badass things like 20th century limited 20th i'll take the century 20th century limited. limited at five o'clock like what the fuck is that and it's just this beautiful romantic thing that's just fucking gone we got gone we got amtrak you can do but like day-to-day life the train Oh, yeah, I know. It's just sad. It's sad. So many of my favorite quotes of the movie, it's just like one of the most quotable movies ever, is him being, like, shoved up in a fallout bed. Did you pack the olive oil? I'm packed in here like a sardine. I know. So, so funny. And, like, just those, you know, those long hallway shots and in and out of a corridor and in and out of, like, a private room and the the scenery, like, buckling past. Like, it, I miss the trains. And this movie is a great train movie. It is. He – and – and for Hitchcock, you know, again, being that guy that he is that, that gets the psychology of you, um, trains a great spot to have a guy who needs to get away. B, it's a tight little space, mm-hmm. limited in where you can go. I it, I still can't believe that the guy didn't get recognized. He's like on every front page in America. Well, okay. 
He's got some fresh Ray-Bans on. He's like, I'm cool. Nobody's going to see me on this crowded-ass fucking train. So I feel like I'm going to have to take up a little bit of a stance in trying to defend old Hitchy here because you got a lot of – I feel like you're going to poke lots of holes. I was thinking about it. That's my role on the show. On the maybe, here. maybe someone did recognize him, and maybe they were like – they reported it, and the people that they reported it to said just act like nobody noticed him because we don't want him to go anywhere. And that's why they came and stopped the train early, because somebody had the, to let them know. What did the professor say? Like, oh, we don't bother the police. We don't bother the police unless absolutely necessary. So maybe the the primal forces at work here just let him get by. Like and, having them drive him to the airport later. And like, ooh, and the part where like the sound is muted by the plane and Dude, the come whole on. point. By the they way. They never talk about what? Okay, by the way, I read somewhere, alternate title for this movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. You're full of shit. <laughs> gotcha! It works, though. I'm just saying. Drunk driving. He's taking the fucking train. You want to talk about some more iconic set pieces before we let the dog off the leash to end the show? Um, one last thing. Okay. One last thing. The, the framing of the dining car set. It's just... Real quick. We're not ending the show. But at the end of the show, we let the dog off the leash. And I felt like the dog was starting to get frothy at the mouth there. So He's getting so there. Yeah, so you want to talk about I just wanted to say, the train some more. Yeah. The way he frames the, the dining car scene. That's all I want to say. With the two of them and that sexy-ass talk that they have. The way he frames it. It's just, it's, it's so, it's just good fucking entertaining Hollywood shit. And I just gush at that shit. And it's got that beautiful, soft, like, strings in the background that comes with the love scenes and the classic movies. And I fucking love it. I don't know. I just wanted to make sure that that got mentioned. We can move uh, on. Uh, let's move on to find ourselves in the middle of a makeshift cornfield, shall we? Oh, yes. Probably the second most famous set piece of the film, right? Uh, I, I think mean, it's the most. I think it most, might be the most. I you maybe it's the most parodied. No, you're probably right. I mean, I think it's hard when you when you fucking pull off Mount Rushmore. It's really hard to say that the cornfield beat it, but the cornfield I, beat it. I think really like first off, just imagine starting with that upper crane shot from way up in the air, s- completely still, completely silent. Watching the bus pull up in real time, not rushing it, giving it its time. I mean, starting from that point to the point that he steals the truck and leaves, that could be a short film that that anybody would think was, like, badass. I mean, absolutely badass. My favorite part of that is, uh, well, that's peculiar. What's that? That plane's crop dusting where there are no crops. And it's just like, like, you know, someone's about to go down. Yeah, you do. And it's in that fucking. OK, so that. That crop duster playing in the background, like at first kind of seems like a little it's almost comforting because like that, like, you know, you get off the plane or you get off the, the bus and you're like looking around and like there's a feeling you get when you can see 360 degrees around you and everything's flat. And it feels at first you're like, oh, this is nice. I can see everything. Right. But then the secondary thought that comes into your mind is, oh, shit, everything can see me. And you're wait, there's no nowhere. There's nowhere to go. Like, I can't go anywhere. Like, I can't hide in the middle of a bunch of people at a train station this time. I'm st- fucking stuck. And like distance is confusing and misleading. Yeah. Yes, it is. 
And you see like the the skyline of a city in the background. I've always wondered. I'm assuming that's just Los Angeles. Um. Yeah. No. No. It's some small town. It's not. Oh, okay. Big, it's not a big city. I think it was either. It's either. Santa they either Clara shot that in, in. It was either Pasadena or Bakersfield, which are two completely different places. But I can't remember which one it was. Let's go with Bakersfield. Let's go with Bakersfield. That sounds right. Right, Bakersfield, Cornfield. Corn, yeah, we'll go with that. Um, cool. Uh, but I love, and I also love just the, the again the way he gives this 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 shit the 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 space to develop into like a really thrilling moment. That suspense that he does. I mean, it's so quiet, and every engine you hear, you can see Thornhill like anticipating that that's Kaplan showing up to the meeting, and every time the car drives by, he's like deflated again and gets more curious and a little more tense and it's just it's so fucking good man we talked about it a little earlier like where the character's at at the beginning of the film as opposed to later and he definitely goes through like this big transition of kind of a dandy highfalutin kind of son of a bitch and then he's like this calm cool collected like near near spy and this sequence is like him coming to fruition of that like being thoughtful enough to look for cover and like being wary of an oncoming car and standing across the road at a stranger. And it's like, it's a big turning point for the character. Agreed. Agreed. It is, it is. And it's, uh, and plus like just fucking how badass is it of Hitchcock to turn an airplane into a weapon in that, even in that intimate of a sense of plus with the, just like dusting him with, you know, chemicals that could kill him. Like, I mean, I don't yeah, know. I got, I don't, that's one Here of the things go. that really bothers me. It's so ridiculous. Here we go. We'll <laughs> save it for later. We'll dig we'll into it. We'll save it for later. We'll save it for later. Do you want yeah. to do the last famous set piece? Yeah, fuck yeah. You, you said all you said. Do you want to say about corn? Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's just badass, but yeah, let's move on. You ever seen Mount Rushmore? I have not, no. I not, have. Not except for in this movie. It's boring as fuck. Is it? So I kinda, overrated. I kind of feel like it would be a little underwhelming, like... It's not in this movie, though. No, in this movie, it's put to good use. It surely is. Yeah. The, the purple hues, the amber waves of grain. Yeah, so... Uh, so, here again, the proper government agency did not like Hitchcock. Yeah, tell that story. I mean, they wouldn't give him shooting permits. These so, people, they, they traveled all the way out to South Dakota, like, legit. All packed up. Rolled out there with all the equipment, all the actors. There's a whole bunch of footage of them out there meeting people from the town and all that good shit. But they would not let them shoot that monument because they really did not like the thought of people getting murdered on the the president's faces and like people dangling from like their facial features. Like they just weren't about it apparently. Yeah, I I love how short that sequence is. But it but feels it's so enormous. But it's really yeah. the last 15 minutes. And it's I'm, like it's so iconic and on like every AFI list, but it's so short and it it's heart wrenching. Like I'm clutching even I've seen this movie like ten times, but even when I'm watching it this time, I'm like, is she gonna fucking fall? Like, are they gonna get caught? Oh my god, there's the film. I forgot about the film. Oh yeah. shit. And the mm -hmm. cuts and it's so beautiful and colorful. It's such an exceptional like moment of filmmaking. It is. And I just to get back to the part of this movie that really just inspires me so much is, you know, you can't shoot there. So what do you do? You go back and you hire great painters to do good foreshortening and you paint Mount Rushmore 30 feet high by 150 feet wide and you build 
you know, terrain that looks like mountains in a soundstage and you use a camera and you use perspective to make it convincing and you give people a fucking thrill. And that's so badass. Surrender to it. it yes. What's the so badass. What's the difference between that and going to see an amazingly done like set at a theater or something? Exactly. It, and that's the whole thing. That's what I keep trying to get back to is like something about these this this movie represents to me like a vibe of old Hollywood that represents something older. Something where the means of communication was was aiming for a different end rather than I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's – I don't know. I, I still haven't figured out how to articulate it, and I think we. that's why we keep saying it's just pure entertainment. It is, but but it just – there's something there. I wish I could formulate I, I would rather, like, surrender to an experience than, like, technology be the star of the show. And I feel like – not to say that technology isn't filled with artists in terms of CGI and special effects. Like, that's obviously not true. But for some reason – this era of special effects, quote unquote, it's just, I, I don't want to feel like I'm in a virtual reality. I want to feel like I'm watching a movie. Yes. And, and I, I actually, really hope, I feel like we're knocking on the door of some like morality thing here in true Hitchcockian form on today's episode of like, we want people to remember these great films and not be turned off because they look different and correct. like have perspective on these stories. Yeah. And, and something I, that you made me think of just now is, is hell, there's something to be said about. You know, if you're using painted sets and you're using forced perspective and you're using all these traditional mechanisms, you know, green screens, what they would call be called today if you're superimposing stuff. Look, you can't make anything and everything happen. You know, like Inception, you're not just going to get to take that walk and flip these sidewalks up in the air and make shit into cubes if you got to build that stuff and actually rig it. You have limitations. There's actual physical, real-world limitations on what you can do and I think this is like the height of that. This is just like the peak of the way humans kind of figured out how to communicate while still fighting actual gravity and not having computer technology to help them break it. I don't know. I don't know. Fuck you if that shit turns you off. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. You want to do our first list of the show? Wait, I got one last thing about the Rushmore thing. One quick last thing. Have Is, it, is it a Teddy Roosevelt quote? No. No. Okay. Have two people ever looked more glamorous scaling mountain terrain? Her hair doesn't move. Dude. When when her high heel breaks, I'm like, <gasps> oh. I clutch my I clutch my pearls. I know. Poor oh, the outfit is ruined now. Damn. Like when they're hanging there and she's like, What happened to your last two marriages? Mm. Uh, they said I lived adult life. And they both <laughs> just look like so perfect. And like <laughs> you know that they're just standing there. Oh, it's so fucking good. They're, they're, they're like laying there, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's great. so good. Oh, okay. Now let's, let's move on. Three shining moments inside three shining moments. Oh! I'm bringing back a segment. We're going to count down our personal three favorite moments of the film. Let's do it. You go first, brother. All right. Um, so we're starting uh, three, three, two, two one, one, right? Okay, three, two, one, three, two, one. Which is really funny, and you'll get it at the end. My third favorite thing of the entire movie is at the very end of the movie when he goes from pulling her up off the mountain and says, Come along, <laughs> Mrs. Thornhill, and pulls her into the train bed. And then right after that, they start embracing each other and, and laying down. And then the down. train goes into the tunnel. And then the, the train tunnel. goes into the tunnel. 
Bam! The, <laughs> the, the person who wrote the screenplay was like, I can't take credit for that. That was totally Hitchcock. Yes, he did. This, like, innuendo of sex oh, is God. so fucking over the top. And it's so, oh. like, out of nowhere. Like, come with me. <laughs> this is Thorn Hill. It's almost like it's dreamish and cartoonish. It's like, wait a second. They were just hanging off the side of a fucking mountain. And the movie's over in, like, nine seconds. And there's a sex joke? Oh, like, what dude. the fuck? Dude, uh, Guillermo del Toro was, like, almost teary-eyed at how... Really? I'm serious, and I agree. Like, okay, when you just go thinking about, like, the basics of making a film, right, and you got to get from this point to this point in the story, the dude uses a fucking, like, overlay transition to, like, cover a whole lot of fucking ground, and it works. I mean, you know... It, it, it could have been like a two hour and 45 minute movie and he like explained how they got down and no. why is why is the bad guy with the cops at the top of the hill and do they make it? Are they going to end up? Do they get married? You know what? Let's fuck. Nope. Let's fuck. <laughs> that's it. Uh, and like that's part of that suspense and that playing with your emotions, that fucking yo-yo, man. It is. Great it pick. Is. My number three, drunk driving. Drunk oh! driving. That sequence, like, this movie is funny and has charm embodied in Cary Grant. And, like, that sequence where he's doing, like, again, these, like, old school playing with the different shots of film and overlaying them as if you're, like, wasted driving. I'm personally paranoid about drunk driving. I don't really, (laughs) thankfully, don't have a lot of experience with it. But he's, like, you can see it. It's hilarious in these moments. He's, like, oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm totally fine. Oh, wait. No, I'm not. And, like, the turn of the car, like, on one tire at the end of a fucking cliff. And it's, like, ridiculous and hilarious. And it's great. It's so good. It is. It really is. It's like a little, like, Buster Keaton-y, like, short film in the middle of this, like, epic thriller. It's it's great. Yeah, and here you go again. Bernard Herrmann's score just, like, nailing it in the driving scene. 100% there. Um, And, you know... Just to harken back to that, how it was made in the old Hollywood stuff that we've been talking about, the moving magic. Like, there's this great thing I noticed as a trained photographer. He does. They do this um, hand coloring um, it, while he's driving to make the area behind him look dark, like it's like the headlights have gone away and it's black out there. So they're hand coloring that film, like on each wow. little. You can see. Like every now and again, he'll turn his head really fast, and there'll be like a little dab of his ear that's like looks like it's in black and white almost. And it's just, I just been like, I gush over that because it's like, yeah, that's so cool. You just get to see like this people they labored over that that yeah. hard. And you know, again, you were a, a projectionalist, so you know what it's like to like when you started at the theater, they still had that machine where you had to splice on the trailers, like you yeah. had to you had to tape pieces of film together. And that was just to put a trailer on a movie. These people were taking multiple pieces of film and splicing this shit together and making collages. That's cr- it's crazy. It's crazy. crazy. It's a labor of love. And like yes. again, how how filmmaking fifty, sixty years ago was so, so much different than it is now, but still the same in the labor of technology. I want to just say I love how this sequence, like really quick, bleeds into like the courthouse portion of it where he's wasted. And calling his mother and, like, some great quotes we're going to leash out from that. I Again, like, it's, like, smack dab in the first middle of the first third of the movie. And it's just kind of, like, in retrospect, looking back at the film and, like, what it is as a whole, its legacy. It's like, oh, yeah. And, again, there's, like, this 12-minute thing where Cary Grant is wasted. 
wasted and does a good job too. I mean, yeah, I just. You know, there might be moments where you're like, damn, over the top. But, like, again, he does a good job of playing, a, like, a fun, entertaining, drunk guy. Like, yeah. Yeah. Did you buy her Mercedes? No, I didn't <laughs> buy her Mercedes. Oh, dude, hold on. Like, off topic for a second. We're not – I don't even know how we could get to this otherwise. But, like, when your boy is in the – when we're in the first 25 minutes of this movie, when I called it quickstand, I'm like, even his mom doesn't believe him. Like, when he shows back up to that mansion with the cops – and they done clean the stains and they moved all the booze. When that fucking chick walks in and she's like, she's like, Roger, dear, we were so worried about you. I'm like, oh, you fucking bitch. Like immediately, like, there's no way. I'm so mad. Honestly, dude, you know what reminds me, what reminded me of that? It's like, it's like get out. Is the Jordan Peele thing that I talked about. Like that kind of creepy, I think if that a moment's redone in 2020 or 2016, whenever that film came out, like that creepy thing of that woman putting on a performance sure and it's like got this sheen of of like horror like this like uneasiness like what the fuck what the actual fuck is going on it's, here i mean it's literally scary like it, yeah. it like to me that's like a literally like and i i told victoria that too like i was like that's legitimately one of my worst fears is like having something am i crazy and trying to tell people that it happened and no one believes me like no one like yeah. that's terrifying and like his his mom and like just doesn't even believe him. It's like where where do you go from there? What is like, she where saying? do you go from there? He opens up the liquor cabinet. It's like this is where all the booze is kept. And she says, "I remember when it used to come in bottles." Oh, yes, exactly. Ugh. Number two for you. Um, number two for me is is. I think really my my top two are really just because of the art the artistic quality of them. I love you mentioned it earlier, but it's a scene in the Townsend Mansion. When Van Damme first walks into the room and him, these two just iconic, you know, actors are staring each other down, trying to figure each other out. And he walks into the room and he draws the shades. Mm. And then that that next cut straight to his face, which is darkened at that point from there you get this dance and the camera starts swooping as he moves around to cut the lamp on then one lamp and then back over to Cary Grant and, or Roger Thornhill looking at him, trying to figure out why the hell he's in this room and can I get some answers? And there's this clip, this little snippet where Van Damme's face is like lit up. Like he's got a flashlight under it, telling a ghost story at a campfire. And I'm like, I was like, dude, this is the, this is just good, good shit. Like, you I, I you could you could just play that on loop no sound just for the visual like if you can look at photographs in a museum you should be able to look at like 15 second clip of film because it's just gorgeous it's so beautiful i'm so glad that's your number two because my number two is eva marie saint versus Cary grant slash roger mason versus Cary grant i love when those couples are on screen and I talked about it earlier when they're just fucking slapping each other back and forth with just great performing. My favorite uh, boy boy scene is at Mount Rushmore right before he gets sh- uh, Thornhill gets shot. And just the language that they're using together, their timing, Cary Grant's timing is so good. Mason's presence is so ominous in the fucking suit. And then obviously the, the playfulness that we've talked about between the two uh, male and female leads. It's It's the charming part of the film. It's the part I like start smiling and swoon over it's it's it, so that's my number two 
yeah, Gen- the- general, but I feel like I got my point across. No, you do. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Like, and it's like a, it's one of those things. And I guess basically, just uh, you know, insert my little you know few seconds about the dining car. Insert that right now. I mean, yeah, you know, it, it it's it, yeah, it's just that quintessential good good stuff. You know, like the powerhouse charisma with powerhouse charisma just playing. It's fun. Oh, it's like I hate to use the word, but it's like smoldering. Smoldering. It, it, I know that's cheesy, but it really is just like dancing around and like it turns me into a like a nerd. Like I got my fists under my chin. I'm like, oh my god, it's so good. Fucking let it smolder, baby. Let it smolder. Number one for you. Number one for me. Again, to continue my geek out tradition. The opening sequence of this movie. The very opening sequence of this movie. And let me describe the opening sequence from the minute the MGM lion comes on the screen with the green background all the way up to the moment that Hitchcock appears. Okay? I'm going to stop with that part there. But you get the Am I green... watching Madman right now? Well, hey, you know, there's, there's, there's a reason. You know, there's a reason that they want to allude to that. But you get these this green background that the lion was on with these diagonal lines – and you get Bernard Herman's fucking genius just blasts in, and you get these brilliant shots of just people moving, moving. Giving it's giving you New York City 1950s. It's giving Absolutely. it to you. It's making you feel it. And you get the sawbass titles start to kind of come in, and then the grid breaks over to a building, and the, the, the titles are running down the building and coming across them, and it's that 50s fucking fashion, it's just everything. I love that opening sequence, and it's so effective, and yeah, that's it's, it. That's a great pick. It's so effective because it's not really indicative of the film as a whole. It's like a punch in the face. You talked about taking like screenwriting classes in college, and they're like, you need to start strong. And this movie, like, it sets the tone for our character. Like, he's a Madison Avenue fucking madman. Like, this is what's going on. And again, I think it's another example of the fucking yo-yo. Like, am I about to be in a New York City movie? Like, it gives you pause to think about? It's like, no, you're about to go on a fucking ride. And it's a great yeah. high-frequency place to start. It is. It absolutely is. And the the, the angles of everything. Yeah. Just the, the way it's given that perspective, it, it kind of throws you off kilter a little bit. It makes you feel a little uneasy. Like, why aren't the credits in the, not, in the right orientation? It's kind of hard to read them. You know, yeah, it's just, yeah. I love the tone it sets, yeah. Me too. My number one is probably, like I referenced at the top of the show, the reason why I fell in love with movies in the first place, and it's the Van Damme house at Rushmore sequence. Mm. The way that Thornhill is sleuthing around and the, just the architecture of the the house, it will stay with me for the rest of my life. To catch a thief in, maybe? And I just, it's so Hollywoody, and it just, as a young kid, I just... It just hit me, and it yeah. was what was the magic of movies and Cary Grant scaling a house, and there's some uh, evil doing going on in the inside, and he's walking up the drive, and again, like just the the angles of the home, and I'll just I I like it, I think it's a part of like my dreams, honestly. That sequence, like the house pops up in my dreams sometimes, and like it's just really really important to me, and I love that sequence, and I I love that it's towards the end of the film, and it wraps everything up, and there's some ridiculous shit. Too, which we're going to talk about, which makes me laugh. It's my number one pick. That's why I love this movie. I love it. And there's also a great – that that sequence has a great start 
because he breaks out of the hospital. He climbs out the window and comes in the other window. And the the, the girl voice in the dark goes, wait! And wait. then cuts on the light and cuts on her glasses and then goes, wait. Because she sees like, Carrie fucking Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Standing in your room. Yeah. I, lo- I love when he's in the hospital too, real quick. When he's uh, he's asking the professor, like, can you get me a, some bourbon? A pint will do. He goes, mind if I join you? Well, better make it a court if you're going to join me. Right. Love that line. It's so good. Yep. Good stuff. Number one that, for you? That I I already did number one. That oh, was your number sorry. one. Welcome okay. to the show. Welcome to the show. We referenced a little bit of the improbability of this. And my favorite scene that I just talked about has one of the most ridiculous ones, which I called matchbook basketball. Like, oh, no. He gives it a practice shot first, man. He, he, so what, what Thornhill, it out. What Thornhill slash Kaplan does is he, like, tr- tries trying to get this woman's attention by sleuthing around the house. And he takes his signature, his uh, monogrammed matchbook, and fucking in basketball, trash basketball, like, Hall of Fame moment. Frisbee's a matchbook from a balcony into a living room, not just kind of next to her, into the fucking bowl on the coffee table. Not quite. Remember, Leonard picks it up. Oh, right. Still. But, still yeah, shocking still, accuracy. I mean, at her feet. Like, at yeah. her feet. Oh, right. Leonard picks it up. That's like the first time in the movie where I realize I know that guy's name. <laughs> Leonard. I don't even know if they say his name Dude, that much. Martin Landau is so good in that sequence. And there's so. also that little tidbit about, like, his sexuality that comes out there at that very end part, too, which the I never even noticed, but the writer, like, straight up just brought up in the special features because he's he holding the gun behind his back, and he says, call it my women's intuition. And then he's talking to his boss, and, then his, and Van Damme's like, I think you're jealous. Like, he assumes to know his situation and the, the, yeah. the writer talked about it. i never thought about it before me neither i, I heard it but i was like well, that's i mean i might say that too because like i don't know if i got skeptical i'd be like my mom taught me how to be suspicious of your ass and i don't call my woman's intuition you know i wouldn't have thought anything of that also can we talk about how like the gun with blanks in it is fired i think like six times how's that gun how does that gun just keep getting used and no one knows that it's got blanks in it i love the uh, housekeeper though she's badass Right, she go. She tries. She tries. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, Eve shoots. She Eve shoots uh, Thornhill twice, and then uh, L- Leonard shoots it once. At, once. Yeah. Just yeah. Once. And then two shots at Thornhill from the housekeeper. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine it would hold five. Right. It's not the amount of shots that bothers me. It's the fact that no one picks it. Like. Everyone in the room, everyone here, just like this gun's not real. Like everyone needs to be on the same page. It just keeps getting used. I don't know. Sorry, it bothers me. Well, I mean, I think the only I say again, I'm just gonna have to defend the logics here. I think the only person who picks the gun up to use it that doesn't know there are blanks in there is the housekeeper at the very end. Everybody else knows it has blanks in it. That's like the whole point of it, because okay. she's gonna fake kill him and then. Leonard knows he's going to fake kill Van Damme so that Van Damme knows it was all fake anyway. So everybody, yeah, sorry. Once again, once again, you've talked me off a ledge. The other, (laughs) outside of his like anonymity being, never being like truly compromised in public yet in media, the pesticide shit, like that dude's dead. He gets doused in pesticide in the cornfield thing and just like grabs a handkerchief and is like, I think that I should saunter out of the cornfield. 
and they're able to like run 50 yards at full sprint. If you get dumped with pesticide, you're fucking dead. Like you're dying. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I have much of a. I, the only thing I have to say about that is those were the people who fought World War Two. That's, that's the only thing I can come up with. I got no clue. That you're right. You, well, you'd be. You'd be pretty ill. War is hell, Mr. Thornhill. Even if it's a cold one. Mm, right. This is probably one of the most like quotable movies of all time. It could something very a, well be something yeah. about those old movies, man. So just to kind of tell you guys what's going on with the music this week, I yanked a lyric for a song I wrote ten nine years ago at this point from this movie. Don't undermine my resolve just when I need it most. Uh, I just it's a beautiful line. It's a one of many in this movie. What are some of your favorite quotes? Well, uh, most of mine come in the the drunk driving por- portion of the movie, and it's like I think a few of mine are uh, the uh, assault with a gun and a bourbon and a sports car. I don't know why that cracks me up so much. And then he's telling his mom, they poured a whole bottle of whiskey down my throat, and then he goes, they didn't give, they give me, me a chaser. chaser. <laughs> they didn't give I love, me a chaser. And I love when she, uh, he tells her the officer's name's Emil, and he and he just goes, I didn't believe it either. It's definitely like a racist moment in the movie that <laughs> seeps through. But I was like, holy shit, did they just like go there? And then he's like, the doctor says, stick out your tongue. And he goes, better move back. Uh... <laughs> also, I could listen to, for some reason, I could listen to Cary Grant say dandruff like a million times over. He's like, Kaplan has dandruff. I just, I can't even do it. I can not, I can't do it well, but I would just pay. Ringtone. I love it when they ask him if he's been drinking and he says, doctor, I'm gassed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, from a couple of people who aren't Cary Grant drunk, um, I love in the elevator when his mom just straight up looks at the two guys and goes, you two aren't really trying to kill my son, are you? And then the whole elevator just bursts out laughing at him, and then she starts laughing at him. (laughs) Damn. I love when um, he's at the train station, he's looking to book a ticket on the 20th Century Limited, and the ticket officer says, uh, is there something wrong with your eyes? And Thornhill says, yeah, they're sensitive to questions. Right. It's so classic, like... Sleuthy. I love it. And I think my fa- maybe my favorite quote, and this is just the history buff in me, is when Alan Dulles, I mean, um, uh, oh! I mean, uh, Leo G. Carroll as the professor um, says uh, that it's now quietly the authority of the printed word. Everyone is playing along just nicely. And it's like, that's a. Uh, complete like overhand statement at exactly what the cia was doing at exactly that time can we talk about the can we talk about the presence of the deep state in this film for a minute oh it's there it's It's like all about it i mean you i mean just after like the mccarthyism shit happened right cia is at like its peak of or the genesis of of its like corruption yeah yeah and hitchcock's like yeah i'll have some of that yeah i mean you yeah i mean you got you know around this shit 
around this time, John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles's brother, I think, is was the Secretary of of State. Like at this at the time this movie was made, I'm pretty positive. Maybe yeah. maybe a couple years before, but right around there, yeah. So it's like right there, and 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 um, yeah. I mean, the way you know, I mentioned before that the first 38 minutes of this movie were just lost out there in the water. We're really like, I mean. You talk about improbability. One of the things that irks me is like I can't understand why, like the like um, Van Damme's heavies thought it was like this one hundred percent foolproof plan to just send somebody in and go paging George Kaplan and like whoever raised their hand was gonna be George fucking Kaplan. Like that part always gets me a little bit. Like and they when he gets to the mansion and he's like, what the fuck? I'm Roger Thornhill. I'm not, I'm not this person. Like you never even considered you got the wrong guy. Like never. Love it. I'm just saying. Uh, which madman character do you think, uh, is best represented in this movie? Cause there's obviously parallels. Um, is he Don? Is he Roger? I think, I think it's a combo of Don and Roger. Which but... one are you? What are you? I mean, I – oh, I don't know, man. I, I I don't know who I am in that show. I would hope it would be nobody. I think he's definitely a Roger Sterling style. Yeah, I think then – I think that what the most obvious thing is, whether you talk Don or Roger, is like obviously the creators of Mad Men drew some in – this had to have been a point of influence for them. There's no way. Yeah. I mean like Hitchcock – like this movie and the – and vertigo in particular with the credits and everything i mean like there had to be some sort of influences there they, there's no doubt i wanted to touch on the uh, auction scene too oh dude that's a that's one of mine too like the way god the way he because i mean in any other movie at the point that thornhill walks into that situation where it's eve kindle and it's Philip Van Dam and it's Leonard over here. Like Leonard. they 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 would be fighting. Like Leonard would be trying to kill him, like physically kill him. But Hitchcock does this great thing, auction house. You know what I mean? And it's like this 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 uh, pretense of society where everyone's ordered and they're you know auctioning art off, and you have to keep your voice down so they can't even yell at each other. It's just I love the way. He yeah, can, it creates that tension. Yes, even when, even when Thornhill's like throwing those bogus calls out, it again creates tension. Like, is he gonna get kicked out? He's obviously trying to like cause a ruckus as to like do a little pick and roll action to get the fuck out of there. The other part I love is Miss um, Saint's like face. Okay, well, I just fell upon that face acting moment for this episode. Oh, when they they fall in love, they're they have feelings for one another. They do. And even though she's with Van Damme. And, like, the tears welling in her eyes as she's facing the camera. And Cary Grant is, like, doing going toe-to-toe with the, with the bad guy behind her. I love that scene. And he, he throws that barb at her when he's like, oh, you were in her room? And Thornhill goes, isn't everybody? Right. Just, like, putting her down, being a fucking dick. I love that part. Sorry about last night, baby. Don't think it wasn't great. Don't think it wasn't a nice time. Yeah. 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 It's just, yeah. It's, yeah. I love that part. And um, okay, so I got something for you. I've been saving. I was really, really scared when you mentioned it earlier. But this feels like a James Bond movie, dude. And 
I it mean, totally does. I mean, okay, so this predates the first Bond movie. It does not 62, predate. Sixty-two, I think, is promotion with love. Yes, and and I'm first off preface i'm not a bond person folks so if i fuck something up you cannot hold it against me and maybe well, you, can you clean up for me you you have a bond person with you today so bam i'll, I'll be here jazz snaps um but okay so there was a t there were a couple of tv adaptations i believe for, that did come about three years earlier and it just so happens that one of the people who helped adapt ian fleming's work for that tv show Worked with Hitchcock on several screenplays, and it wow. kind of gets you. I mean, it kind of gets you thinking. Like, there's this, there's like this vibe in this movie, and a little bit of several Hitchcock movies that kind of give you, but mostly this one because okay. Let's just say that Cary Grant's character's name was George Kaplan, and right. he actually played a CIA agent in this movie, and you watched the same movie, hundred percent same movie. But just that one fact was changed. You basically have James Bond. Yeah, I mean, seriously. Also, they, like, Cary Garrett, English-born. Yes. He's got yeah. a Bond. He's got the hairy, dark hair. Yeah. The, very Bondy. He got the like, villain. Yeah. Got a Bond girl. No, Drinks the martinis. Knows how to throw a punch. No, wait. Oh, okay. Gibson. First of all, it's not oh. a martini. It's a Gibson. My bad. Second of all, horrible Hollywood kissing in this movie. Awesome Hollywood punching. Mm. Cary Grant throws a fucking punch. Yet, seems one. like he's a virgin. <laughs> he's making out. What's up with the hands on the head? Oh, I know. It's so odd. It's, it's so like, weird. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, maybe maybe they were both, like, because they were both married to other people. So, okay, my theory, my juicy Hollywood theory is that the two of them were secretly smashing. When were they when they were acting on screen, they needed to make it look as unconvincing as possible so that their respective partners would not catch on. That's my theory. What's with like the fifties movie thing, the kissing where like you don't purse your lips, but you're just like like cupping your face with the other person? What's up with that? Are they what? trying to like like normalize sexuality so teenagers aren't making out after the movie? Like what's going on with that? I feel like she may have been doing a little bit better of a job, but but she yeah, was, it is. Yeah. It's just some dead lipping in there, man. There's some dead zero, lipping going on in there. Zero clutches. No enthusiasm whatsoever. <laughs> but but you got to give it that like steamy romantic like rolling around. <laughs> you know they're like they roll together across the wall like yeah whatever. I've never done that myself, but hey. Uh, it cracks me up every time. What else you got? You know, I think for me, I, I just have like a couple of closing thoughts and remarks. I mean, I, I most of everything that I would want to shout out is there. Um, I just want to say, like, I think I love this kind of movie. And I'm glad that we're doing the kind of podcast that we can talk about these kinds of movies and not just new stuff or certain kind of things. Because... It was a lot of fun to, especially at the end of this year, to just get a couple of good solid hours of get the fuck out of the world and like go to a place that's beautiful and like fun, you know, and not have to, you know, just be taken away, you know. And I think that that's one of the things that makes cinema like so 
amazing and why we do what we're doing here, why we watch all the movies that we watch, because it's just such a good art form for, for getting you out. And I think that's one of the best things about this movie is just like we've been saying, pure entertainment. It's just really good stuff. And, and if you can submit to it, like we said, or surrender to it, you're going to have a really, really fucking good time for 15 minutes. I love the, the first trigger snap moment for me that happens in that is the like the disclaimer after the credits that we've detailed where he's like all of likeness of this is is a coincidence and they're not based on real things and just a fucking second what the fuck am i about to watch <laughs> yeah is, no it, it immediately puts you on edge you're like is this fucking real? Is this about the CIA? Like, what the fuck am I about to And that's, he does it on fucking purpose. He does, and that's completely one of the things that's included in my number one favorite thing about the film is that opening sequence. I love, yeah. the, in particular, the way he puts that and not that like anonymity clause over a bunch of anonymous people just rushing in exactly. and out of a fucking building. It's like, oh my God, I love you. I fucking love the way your brain works, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I, I told you earlier, I'm this winter, I'm just going to binge all of fucking Fuck yes. Like, there's ten of them on the Peacock app that I recently got to watch Premier League Soccer. And I just happened, to find, I just happened to find that there's ten Hitchcock films, and, like, his show is on there, too. So I'm about Presents? to go deep. Yeah. yeah. I'm fucking I got pumped. That. Yeah. It's, I'm fucking pumped. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing you can touch on. Hitchcock. Dude, the guy's an icon. He's such an OG. Like you said started like doing like illustrations for cue cards this guy would sit and storyboard every frame of his movies before he he would get a team together of people he knew he wanted to work with and he would sit down and he would just storyboard everything on papers that had three rectangles on it at a time and he'd draw everything with arrows showing which way the camera moved sketched everything out he knew how he wanted the whole film to look before they ever started shooting and I just find him so inspirational in the way that he's able to, I don't know, just, yeah, it's like, I think one of the, the big ones, you know, one of the and top. And I think it's obvious that he has that much detailed work. And like I said earlier, like every frame of his films, and this one even in particular, has purpose. And it's there to like get you in some, it has a purpose, it has an agenda. It will, and, and I think, we talked about it earlier, but I'll just briefly say, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that he came from, he started making silent films. Yeah. He has this great quote where he said that the only thing wrong with silent films was that when people opened their mouths and moved their lips, words didn't come out. And like, when you think about that, you're like, well, duh, right? Like that's the only thing. But when you think about it a little deeper, you realize like that kind of filmmaking meant that every frame visually had to tell you a story like it, right. it the, the the visual needed to move the story along and i think hitchcock's films very much do that this just that when the people move their mouths and move their lips words come out you know revolutionary stuff oh also hitchcock <laughs> famous for putting that was himself... like some blockbuster back of the box bullshit come on man <laughs> Uh, Hitchcock famous for cameos in every single one of his films. I think this one makes me laugh the most. I think he's the he's the guy walking his dog out of the bird shop and the birds. That one's pretty funny. Yep. But this one, he's credited as man who misses bus. Yeah, right, right. No bus for you. He just ah, barely missed it. So yep. in, 
In closing, we start at the beginning. Al, you missed the bus. Thanks for delighting us. This is a fun one. Yes, it was. Absolutely. Uh, To the birds, my friend. Hallelujah, my friend. Thank you for putting up with the music and me and my friends from 10 years ago attempting to be emo gods, but also thank you for your time and listening. Go like, follow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Tell all your friends. And everyone, we have one more episode of this season to give. We're going to take a little break and come back. It's in the spirit of the holiday season. We can't wait to wrap up this year with y'all. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time.